We've seen that first the Messiah had to come as the suffering Savior and then come as the glorious King. But the Jews of Jesus' time were looking for a political deliverer rather than a Savior from sin, so they didn't understand or recognize him. This is why, as he presented himself as the Messiah, many assumed he was going to start a revolt and take power at that time, but actually he was coming in humility to suffer and die. These messianic issues came to the forefront in Matthew 16, where we see even his disciples did not understand that he had come as the suffering Messiah first, before coming as the kingly Messiah. In Matthew 16:18, Jesus revealed something quite new when he said, I will build my church. Knowing that Israel were rejecting him so that he couldn't establish his kingdom at that time, he announced that he would build his church. He needed to start preparing his disciples for the church age. Then Matthew 16:20 says, Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Has that ever puzzled you? The reason is that the Jews would have understood the title Christ or Messiah as the name for the kingly Messiah, but he had come as the suffering Messiah. He knew that if he was being announced as the kingly Messiah, it would stir up the Jews to revolt and cause great problems with the Romans. He wanted them to know that he had come as the suffering Messiah, which is why we read in the next verse, in verse 21, From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. But even Peter was expecting him to be the kingly Messiah rather than the suffering Messiah, which is why we read in verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. The disciples were expecting to rule with him in glory, and so it was a shock when he announced he would first have to suffer and die. That wasn't in their plan. Soon after, Jesus affirmed that he will also come as the glorious Messiah, but it will be after his death and resurrection. You see, in verse 27, he said, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his deeds. Verse 28, he then makes an interesting statement. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Again, he's assuring them that he's also the kingly Messiah and that he will establish his kingdom. But he seems to be saying it will be in some of their lifetimes. Was this a false prophecy? No. If we read on into the next chapter in Matthew 17, the mystery is solved. He was talking about Peter, James and John, who he then took up on the Mount of Transfiguration and appeared to them in his glory. And this was a prophetic preview of the Messianic Kingdom, his kingdom when he would reign in glory. And this is exactly how Peter interpreted the Transfiguration in 2 Peter 1, 16-19. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, of his kingly majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word of the messianic kingdom made more sure by the transfiguration. 
the transfiguration, you see, was his assurance to them that although he would die as the suffering servant, they were not to be discouraged because that was just phase one. Phase two was also coming when he will return to reign in his glory. We now go on to answer the big questions of prophecy. Why didn't Jesus establish his messianic kingdom in fulfillment of prophecy once he rose from the dead and established the new covenant? Why did the church age happen instead? Does that mean the messianic kingdom will never happen? Through the next two keys of prophecy, we will answer these vital questions. Using our jigsaw analogy, there are two sides to the jigsaw. The Old Testament prophecies on one side and the New Testament church on the other. And one of the biggest problems in prophecy is connecting these two together into one big consistent picture. On one side we have the Old Testament expectation and prophecies of the kingdom that Messiah will establish when he comes. But when Christ actually did come, he established something quite different, the church age. So how can we explain the difference between the Old Testament prophecies and what actually happened, the church age? One solution to this problem has been to spiritualize prophecy, claiming that the prophecies were fulfilled in the church, so there is no future kingdom for Israel. I reject this approach as wrong, because it denies the literal historical interpretation of prophecy, which means the plain meaning, as understood by the original, by the historical hearers. It involves rewriting these prophecies, changing their plain meaning, to make them fit what has actually happened. There is a better way to fit together these two sides of the puzzle that does justice to both the Old and New Testaments. The logical approach is to look at where the two join. They overlap in the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, as recorded in the Gospels. This was the transition between the Old and the New, because both John and Jesus operated under the Old Covenant before the cross, but also they were laying the basis for the New Covenant. They were starting to bring the Old Testament prophecies into fulfillment. The first prophetic key from the ministry of John and Jesus was that part of their ministry was to announce that God was offering the messianic kingdom to Israel. Jesus came as the Messiah to Israel. According to the prophets, part of his mission was to suffer and die for sin, and the other part was to bring in and rule over the promised kingdom of glory. He said in Matthew 5.17 that he came to fulfill all the law and the prophets. John the Baptist was the prophesied forerunner of Christ, preparing the way for the king and his kingdom, announcing his imminent arrival. In Matthew 11, 9-11, Jesus said of John, A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Thus John was the last and greatest in the line of prophets heralding Messiah's coming. And then in verse 12 and 13, Jesus said, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Now this is a poor translation of verse 12. Instead of the kingdom suffering violence, it should be that the kingdom is forcefully advancing, forcing itself on men's attention. Violent men take it by force is really talking about believers laying hold of the kingdom. 
This is confirmed by the parallel verse in Luke 16:16, 16, 16, where Jesus says, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. Therefore, it was through the preaching of John and Jesus that the kingdom started to force itself on men's attention. Therefore, a better translation of Matthew 11:12 is, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven forces itself on men's attention, and the forceful ones lay hold of it, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. According to Jesus, John's ministry was the start of a new era. He said all the prophets prophesied unto John. Before John, all the prophets were looking forward to the coming of the king and his kingdom. But with John's ministry, these prophecies were now starting to be fulfilled. John was more than a prophet. He was a fulfillment of prophecy, the first stage of the messianic fulfillment of prophecy. Therefore, the presentation of Jesus to Israel as the Messiah officially began with the ministry of John. And all four Gospels start with John's ministry. Thus, with the ministry of John, there was a sudden change in the relationship of the kingdom to Israel. It was no longer somewhere in the future, but present at hand now, breaking through, forcing itself on men's attention through the gospel. In fact, Jesus called it the gospel of the kingdom, or the good news of the kingdom. And the good news is that the kingdom of God is at hand, it's present, it's available now to be received by faith. And thus, it was being offered to the people of Israel, and those who believed the message laid hold of the kingdom by faith. In Matthew 3, 1 and 2, John came to Israel preaching, repent and believe the gospel, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In Matthew 4, 17, it says, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 10:7, Jesus told his disciples, As you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark 1, 14 and 15 says, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What had been prophesied was now being fulfilled. It was the good news that the kingdom was being graciously offered to them, and that they had the opportunity to receive it. Now, as we hear these words from our perspective in the church age, we naturally interpret it as the offer of personal salvation, healing and deliverance to individuals, and that's valid. But there's much more going on here than that. If we put ourselves in the place of the original Jewish hearers of that day, what would they have understood by the kingdom of God? and the kingdom being at hand. Bear in mind that this kingdom must have been something they already knew about, as neither John or Jesus felt they had to explain what they meant by it. Also, by saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, it's clear that this kingdom had to be the subject of Old Testament prophecy. The answer is clear. When Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, the Jews would naturally have understood him to be referring to the messianic kingdom that the prophets had promised the Messiah would personally inaugurate when he came. This would have been their assumption. So if he meant something else, he would have surely made that clear. But he never said anything to correct this understanding. If he was not really offering the messianic kingdom to Israel, but just merely talking spiritually, he would have been deceiving them. So this was a momentous message saying, the Messiah has come, he's here, and he's ready to introduce the messianic kingdom.
So according to the principle of literal interpretation, he was offering the messianic kingdom to that generation of Israel. The presentation of Jesus to Israel as the Messiah King and the proclamation of his kingdom went hand in hand. Since he presented himself as the Messiah and since the prophecies made it clear that when Messiah comes he will establish his kingdom, it follows that when the Messiah announced the kingdom of God was at hand, he was referring to the messianic kingdom and this is how he would have been understood. Now, of course, the gospel of the kingdom applied to individuals also. It was God's offer of salvation and healing to all, which anyone who believed could receive. But it was also a message to the nation of Israel, offering the messianic kingdom to that generation, if they would repent and believe on Jesus as the Messiah. Notice that both for individuals and the nation, although the kingdom was at hand through the Messiah they had to believe in the Messiah and receive him as their king if they were to receive it you can't have a kingdom without a king and willing subjects who submit to him thus John's ministry was to prepare Israel so that when Jesus appeared they would receive him as their king and so the kingdom could be established it was this ministry to the nation that brought Jesus into confrontation with the leaders of Israel for through his preaching he was forcing himself and his kingdom upon their attention forcing them to make a decision the whole dynamic of the Gospels is Jesus is challenging and calling both individuals and the nation to choose to accept or reject him so that so that as time goes on and people make up their minds a clear division develops between those who believe in him and those who reject him unfortunately the nation as represented by her leaders increasingly chose to reject him and so Israel was not spiritually ready to receive the kingdom the supernatural signs he did were part of his messianic credentials they were not just to inspire faith in him on an individual level they were also signs of the kingdom given to the nation promising what he will do for all if Israel received him and his kingdom in other words they were demonstrations on a small scale of what he will do on a universal scale when he establishes his kingdom on earth so <clears throat> The individual healings and deliverances were a sign of what he will do for the whole earth in that day. He will remove, for instance, all sickness and all demonic powers. So, in his first coming, Jesus came to die for our sins, but he also offered the messianic kingdom to Israel, declaring, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's ready to be established. So Israel had to decide to accept or reject him and his kingdom. The kingdom was offered to Israel on condition that the nation receive him as Messiah. So, he was ready to establish the messianic kingdom of God after his death and resurrection, if Israel would have received him. A key moment when Jesus officially presented himself to Israel as their king and offered them the kingdom was at his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He was fulfilling a messianic prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. Matthew 21 verse 4 says, All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey. So by riding into Jerusalem in this way, he was claiming to be their true king. Riding in on a donkey rather than a war horse meant he was coming in humility, offering himself to them to be their king rather than forcing his kingdom upon them. We see from the reaction of the crowds that they understood that, and they welcomed what he was doing. 
In Mark 11, verse 9, we read, Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord was a messianic greeting, welcoming him as their Messiah King, inviting him to save them, for Hosanna means save now. They're saying, blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord, shows that they knew that he was coming to bring them the kingdom of David. That is, the kingdom promised to David, the messianic kingdom. They were expecting him to establish that kingdom. Matthew 21.9 confirms that they welcomed him with the official greeting to be given to the kingly Messiah, the son of David. It says, the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Luke 19.38 records the greeting, Blessed be the king that comes in the name of the Lord. This was a special day when Israel should have officially accepted Christ and thereby ensure that they would enter the kingdom of peace. The problem was that although many accepted him, the leaders of Israel rejected him, which meant that he could not establish his kingdom at that time. The unbelief of the rulers is seen in their response to the enthusiasm of the crowds in, in Luke 19:39. It says, some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, that if these become silent, the stones will cry out. His response to their criticism shows no sign that the crowds had misunderstood what he was doing, but rather he reasserted his messianic claims. This national rejection of Christ meant that judgment would come upon them rather than the blessing of the kingdom. Even while the crowds were cheering, Jesus knew that the leaders in Jerusalem had rejected him, so he prophesied about this judgment on Jerusalem, which was fulfilled by the Romans in AD 70. In Luke 19, 41-44, it says, When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. That's the kairos of your visitation. The reason for Jerusalem's destruction was that they did not recognize that they were living in the time of Messiah's visitation to Israel and so they did not accept him. When we study Daniel's 70 weeks, we'll see that they should have known that this was the time appointed by God for the Messiah to come as Savior, to make atonement for man's sin, and as King, to offer the kingdom to Israel. Notice in verse 41 that Jesus marked the day of his triumphal entry as having special importance. He said, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, that day... That very day was his official presentation of himself to Israel, giving them the perfect opportunity to accept him as their Messiah King. Had they responded correctly, they would have had the peace of the Messianic Kingdom under the Messiah, rather than judgment under the Romans. Their King had visited them, and if they would have accepted him, they would also have come under the blessing of his Kingdom. But they rejected him, so instead judgment was going to fall on Jerusalem. 
Jesus confirmed this a few days later when he addressed the leaders of Israel in Matthew 23. Let's read verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more until you, that's the leaders of Israel, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He'd wanted to personally gather all Israel together under his wings, under his authority, by establishing his kingdom and reigning from Jerusalem as the king. But they were not willing to receive him. And because they rejected him, destruction was going to come on the temple, and that happened in A.D. 70. He also announced that as a result of their rejection of him, he would leave them. This implies that had they accepted him, he would have remained and covered them with his glory. Does this mean that God is finished with Israel? That she's forever lost her opportunity to receive the promised kingdom? That the messianic kingdom will not be established through Israel after all? No. Although he said he would leave them, he also promised to return to Israel. But he will not return until Israel receives him, welcoming him as their Messiah, and calling upon him to return by saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Although many had said these words at his triumphal entry, the leaders of Israel who represented the nation did not. So Jesus is predicting that there will be a future time when the whole nation, both the leaders and the people, will believe in Jesus as the Messiah and invite him to return and establish his kingdom. And when they do this, he will return in power and deliver them from their enemies and gather them under his wings in his kingdom. As Romans 11.26 says, All Israel will be saved, as it is written, The Deliverer will come out of Zion. Therefore, the result of their rejection of Christ was not the cancellation of the kingdom, but its postponement. Just as Israel's possession of the promised land was postponed 40 years because of unbelief, so their possession of the messianic kingdom was postponed 2,000 years. Even though man is unfaithful, God remains faithful to his promises, and so he will establish his kingdom on earth. After describing his rejection by the leaders in a parable, Jesus said to them in Matthew 21:43, The kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation pro producing the fruit of it. So the kingdom was taken from that generation and will be given to a later generation. This again proves that he had offered the kingdom to that generation. When Jesus appeared to his disciples after the resurrection, they were still hopeful he would establish his messianic kingdom at that time. In Acts 1.6 they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They were clearly referring to the messianic kingdom which will be centered on Israel. This question proves that they had no doubt that it would be established. The only issue for them was its timing. God-fearing Jews at that time believed in the Messianic Kingdom, and it's clear that Jesus had not taught them otherwise. So Jesus must have upheld the literal interpretation of the prophets. Jesus' answer in Acts 1-7 also confirms that the kingdom will be established. He said, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority, if their assumption about the messianic kingdom was wrong, Jesus would surely have corrected them, saying, there will be no such kingdom. But he didn't. He just said it was not for them to know when it will be established. 
There was a reason he couldn't give them a clear answer on this issue, because the timing of the establishment of this kingdom depended on Israel's decision to accept or reject Christ, and the offer was still on the table. So we wanted them to continue to make the offer of the kingdom to Israel for a time, for a bit longer. If Israel repented, he was still ready to establish the kingdom at that time, but if not, the kingdom would be delayed. Therefore, since it was a genuine offer, and the deadline hadn't yet been reached, it was not possible for Jesus to reveal the timing. When was the cut-off point for Israel? When did the grace period run out and the offer withdrawn? Some believe it was in Matthew 12, when the leaders accused Jesus of being demon-possessed, and in response he warned them about the unforgivable sin and crossing over the line into certain judgment. However, he did not say that they had committed it yet, but that they were in danger of committing it. Later on, he was still offering the kingdom to Israel at his triumphal entry. Also, in Matthew 12, in response to their request for more signs, he said he would give them one more sign, proving he was the Messiah, the sign of Jonah, thus giving them a final chance to repent. So the offer was still on the table for a period of time after his resurrection. This is confirmed by the book of Acts, where we see that during the first few months after the resurrection, God was still reaching out to Israel, offering them the kingdom. In Acts chapter 2 and 3, as well as preaching to individuals, Peter called the nation of Israel to repent and accept Christ. In Acts 2.36 he said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. Notice he addressed the nation, the whole house of Israel. And he pointed to the resurrection in his sermon as proof that Jesus is the Messiah King, both Lord and Christ, and he called Israel to repent of her rejection of him. Also in Acts 3, Peter appealed to the Jews and their rulers when he said in Acts 3.17, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. He was expressing God's willingness to forgive their sin against Christ. Then in Acts 3.19 he goes on to say, Therefore repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, send Jesus from heaven, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period or the time of the restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. If we take Peter literally, he was saying that if Israel repented, that generation would be forgiven of her rejection of Christ, and that God would send Jesus from heaven to establish the kingdom of which all the prophets spoke, when all things would be restored, in other words, the messianic kingdom, the time of restoration of all things. Therefore, the offer of the kingdom was still being made to Israel at this point. Next time we will see when the grace period for Israel actually ended, when the offer of the kingdom was finally taken away from that generation. God was not taken by surprise by Israel's rejection of Christ. He had a plan ready to put into operation. Instead of establishing the messianic kingdom, he would reveal something he had previously kept hidden as a mystery, which is the church age. And then afterwards, he will establish the messianic kingdom to fulfill all his covenants and prophecies to Israel.
Although Israel's unbelief meant the Messianic Kingdom was delayed, delay is not denial.